following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. read for you from John's Gospel, John 20, beginning at verse 19, just after the initial event of the raising of Jesus and his appearance to Mary Magdalene and the witnessing of the empty tomb by Peter and John, we come to read this, John 20, verse 19 and following to the end of the chapter. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe it. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's holy word. Twenty years ago, I understand a significant public debate took place in Chicago. It faced off two Christian scholars with opposing views of the resurrection of Jesus. A syndicated columnist, now the late William Buckley Jr., acted as moderator for this rather important and well-publicized debate. 
On the side of evangelical Christianity was a scholar, William Lane Craig of Talbot Seminary in California. Opposite him was the best-selling author, Father Dominic Crossan of DePaul University. Moderator Buckley set the tone for the debate with this, at least this is a part of his introduction. I quote him. He said, Christianity is not just a code for living or a philosophy of religion. It is rooted in real events of history, and if those historic facts can be disproved, Christianity would be false. So the moderator summarized, Christianity's truth must be verified in historical evidence. Well, then the man who would agree with that completely, Dr. Craig, the conservative, presented his case in credible evidence to back up particularly the orthodox view of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and that it can be defended by many logical proofs and thoughts that help us see there's really no other conclusion possible than the fact that Jesus was risen and in a bodily way. But then Father Dominic Crossan argued, as he does, you may or may not know this man, he's written many flamboyant books of a very liberal viewpoint, and his viewpoint was to say that the absence of historical, a historical resurrection would make no real difference to Christianity. Crossan goes so far to say, and I wouldn't even state what I'm going to say in a moment if he hadn't said it, and I'm quoting him, that it makes so little difference what happened to the body of Jesus that, quote, he could have been dumped in a shallow criminal's grave or perhaps he was even eaten by wild dogs. It doesn't matter. For Father Crossan, the resurrection is a myth, a spiritual symbol of hope, some kind of hope. I'm not sure what hope you get out of thinking Jesus was eaten by wild dogs. But he says it really doesn't matter and it doesn't enter into the actual realm of proof and history. Well, John 20 tells us of a disciple named Thomas in whom you might say this whole gospel kind of culminates and comes together. Way, way back, more months than you can recall, we started studying John. And when we did, I told you of verse 31 of chapter 20, being the theme statement of the gospel. These things, the whole gospel, not just this most recent tale, but all of the gospel, these things are written so you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. This all culminates now in this man, Thomas. You probably know him as Doubting Thomas. He earned that title pretty well. Tells us here why he earned that title. A man whose views weren't so different from those of today's skeptic, Dominic Crossan, until the moment when Jesus toppled his cynicism and his skepticism off its pedestal by a personal and face-to-face encounter. We've heard in this chapter of Mary Magdalene coming. We've heard of Peter and John coming to the empty grave, them believing. John, remember, in this early, earlier in this chapter, says when he saw the grave clothes and the way they were lying, 
he saw and believed in verse 8. It was a critical moment for John himself, the author. The resurrection was, was what completed things for him. But now, as, he, as the gospel tells about a crucial gathering, the disciples were staying together trying to figure out what happens next. Uh, you know, in a, it must have been an amazing kind of spirit of, the Lord's alive, isn't he? What do we do now? And yet they knew they were in a dangerous place that those who sought Jesus' life probably would be glad to sacrifice their lives. And so the text tells us they were in a locked room for fear of the authorities. There was fear there, even though there was resurrection faith. And twice it tells us that this was a locked room, and twice into the room Jesus was suddenly there. And our biblical author is as if, if I can paraphrase John saying at the end of this chapter, I I hear him saying, why, you readers have followed what I've been saying now for more than 20 chapters. Have you grasped my total purpose, the purpose of what I've been writing about the whole time, is so that you would reproduce the experience of this man, Thomas. And by believing Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you would have life in his name. I'm before you to ask if you have this life. You have the life of Christ pulsing and moving within you, not just as a concept in your mind, but as a living reality in a living Lord. Do you have his life today? I'm asking you to consider several things. First of all, how this story of Doubting Thomas depicts many real people around us, maybe some right here, who reject God's gift of life by their unbelief. Now, we're told Thomas wasn't present the first time, and you might think, well, that was just unfortunate. He was out on an errand, maybe doing something related to his family, or, you know, he just had something else to do, and it's unfortunate that he wasn't there. I don't want to step apart from the text too much or force something into the text that isn't justified, but let me at least suggest the possibility that Thomas wasn't there because of his perfect disposition towards unbelief. His skepticism and his cynicism separated him from those among the disciples who already were people of faith in the resurrection. And we know that what Thomas was displaying here is nothing other than his character as it had been seen already in this same gospel. He was always the guy who saw the darker side, the pessimistic side of everything. Just a couple evidences of that. Chapter 11 of John, verse 16. You remember the disciples and Jesus were away from Bethany when Lazarus died, and Jesus said, now we're going to go there and and be with him, and he plainly told them, Lazarus is dead. And hearing that, Thomas was the one who spoke up and said, oh boy, he's dead? Well, what's the good of going? We might as well go die with him. Because Thomas was saying, in other words, we know that could very well happen to us if we show up in Jerusalem. We're as good as dead too. And then again in John 14, verse 5, very familiar passage where Jesus was saying that the disciples knew where he was going in the destination of his death and so on. 
And it was Thomas who cynically stated after Jesus said, you know the way to the place I'm going. Thomas cynically spoke up and said, we don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? There he is displaying the basic character of his pessimism. You know, a man like Thomas has a hard time being around optimists. They rub him the wrong way. For Thomas, the glass is always, always, always 75% empty, not 25% full, or whatever percentage you want to assign. He's going to see it negatively. And when you're like that, I would suggest to you it makes it hard to be in fellowship with people of faith with a positive outlook and and real hope in Christ because they're going this way and you're going this way. And you're just not going to meet all that often. The weed of skepticism flourishes in isolation from the garden of faith. Well, Thomas heard the reports that the women brought. He heard Mary Magdalene say, The Lord is risen. I've seen him. He saw Peter and John go running to the tomb. Did he go running to the tomb? Evidently not. He didn't want to exert himself that much because his worldview. Remember last week I talked about presuppositions, those preconceptions or already made up ideas that guide your life, whether you recognize them or not. His preconception was, well, this thing can't happen. And so he wasn't about to go and exert any effort to find out if it had happened. His presupposition was unbelief. And until somebody forced him into belief, he was going to have no part of it. And then, of course, he wasn't in the room the first time that Jesus came. Do you recognize yourself in Thomas, possibly? I asked this question of the first service congregation, and I actually had a couple of people come up to me in the hall and say, yep, I'm a Thomas. Yep, that's me. I always see the skeptical side. I'm always ready not to believe until somebody knocks me out. I was glad for their honesty. How many people are perhaps saying in one way or another in their life today, I will not believe that God's leading and working and transforming in my life until blank, you fill it in. What has to happen in your mind to convince you? Some of you are holding conditions like that up to God. Do this, God, and then I'll be able to believe. I've got my set of filters you have to satisfy before I'm going to trust you. Well, although this knee-jerk unbelief of Thomas did put him at a grievous disadvantage, and, and it does so for anyone else, too, it does not disqualify him for saving faith. I would have you see that here. In fact, Jesus comes that second time and meets Thomas there in the room, and do you see anything in this text, any word at all about, all right, Thomas, let me have a little hard talk with you first about this bad attitude of yours. Not at all. Doesn't say anything like that. He comes and he says, all right, you set the conditions. You said, unless I put my finger there, my hand there, all right, Thomas, put your finger there. Put your hand there. I satisfy your conditions. I'm happy to stoop down to where you're at. I'm happy to condescend to your level of demands. I won't condemn you for being a sourpuss skeptic. 
See, behold, examine, and believe. I think Christ loves lame sheep. You know how he calls us his sheep, the sheep of his flock? Every flock's going to have some lame ones. Some who are in trouble or in difficulty or or don't think logically the way they ought to, or maybe because of some terrible disappointment or disaster or tragedy in their personal life. They're just disabled from coming to Christ in an easy way, so they insist on coming the hard way. Jesus saw this, and he did not neglect nor forget about condescending to meet this one with all of his unbelief. But now, secondly, I ask you to look with me at the tangible evidences that are available for Christ-centered faith. And I'm not going to go through the list of resurrection proofs this morning. I could lay before you, and we could put them up on a projector or a sheet of paper in your hand or whatever, the 15 or 20 very logical, clear, historical points that make us say, here, look, tick this off, you know. How are you going to, for example, just on one example, how do you get past a squad of Roman soldiers guarding a tomb? You know, this is the best security system available in the ancient world. And these people were confounded and couldn't come up with any other explanation for what happened. They went along with the story. His disciples took him, but they knew that wasn't true. And on down the list, let's think about the tangible evidences for Christ-centered faith that were just put before Thomas here. He was quite sure that he set up an impossible test that Christ could not satisfy. Unless I see his hands in the mark of the nails and place my hand. Notice how defiant he is. This is a really defiant statement. I will never believe. You know, this isn't just a little bit mild. This is really absolutely rebellious in a vehement way. There's no humility here at all. I am right, and unless God knocks me down flat... I have to be right. I find it interesting that people who criticize Christianity, who criticize the Bible, the dominant crossings of the world, (laughs) you know, the liberal attitude is supposedly, the so-called liberal attitude. Liberal actually means it has a lot to do with being open-minded. And liberal people will always say, oh, well, I'm open-minded. I'm a seeker after truth. Just don't come and talk to me about those fundamentalist ideas of yours that the Bible is all true. Otherwise, I'm open-minded. That sounds really open-minded, doesn't it? You find the liberal viewpoint is so locked in to what it puts first that it cannot hear the truth, cannot even weigh and evaluate or openly consider the truth so often today. Ultimatums have been put up. God! Lead me. I'm an open-minded person. Just don't tell me that that's true because I couldn't believe that. Where's that going to get you? Have you put mandates like that up to God and say, well, I'll serve you, Lord. I'll believe you, whatever you say. But quietly, the part of you that's not talking at the moment is saying, but just don't cross this line. God obliged arrogant Thomas by showing him the exact evidences. He demanded the scars of the cross were on Jesus. Do you realize that? This is his resurrected body. It, 
it, it was Jesus. They could recognize him. His face was in enough of the same form. His body, you know, even though immediately at the tomb they kind of mistook him and Mary said, I thought it was the gardener. And, but when he spoke and things came into focus, oh, it is the Lord. Now there's a, a wonderful testimony for us here that the new body, it was a real body, it wasn't a ghost or a phantom, the new body that Jesus had, a, a body that could be touched, he could be embraced and given embrace. He could shake your hand and you'd know a hand was there. This new body had the scars of the cross. And this is one of the passages, one of the significant ones, I would say, that it makes New Testament theologians believe that the glorified body that Christ dwells in in heaven today bears the marks of the cross. We don't think we're just being fanciful when we say those wounds are still there. Because they're not anymore, you know, scars of defeat. I've got a little teensy scar on the back of my hand. It's only an inch long. You wouldn't even know it was there. I see it all the time. I owe it to a dog. I was mad at a dog. And so a dog was mad at me. And I was really the one at fault. And so he left me a little mark that I can remember him by. Well, Jesus carries marks today. But they're not marks of defeat. They're wounds of victory, aren't they? They're a conqueror's wounds. And, you know, maybe we say, maybe you say, well, all right, Pastor, you're telling me that God was kind to Thomas. He accommodated this guy who probably should have been ignored. He was so arrogant. And he gave him what he asked for. But I've got this problem. Why doesn't God appear to me like that? I've got my own set of questions. Why doesn't Jesus appear to me and give me something really convincing like this? Well, I want to say to you this. Why do you think God has to show mankind the same proofs over and over and over again? How many times would be enough for him to show in history and time and space and in real lives of people who were not liars, who were not expecting these things to happen, who were totally surprised and overtaken by them? How many of these kinds of signs would he have to give before you believed that there was a good case of evidence for the risen Christ. The hymn writer says a memorable line that comes back to me a lot of times. What more can he say than to you he has said? God has put all kinds of marks of evidence in history, not only of the resurrection, but many other things. Are you ready to hear the things that he's already given? There's so much evidence in the Scriptures if you approach them with a true open mind of faith to examine what's there and say, Lord, teach me. I'm ready to learn. I'm not defiant like Thomas saying, you better prove it to me because I'm a tough case and you're not going to get through me. Well, if that's where you're standing, it may well be that God isn't going to get through the resistance that you're putting up against him. I've given you my testimony in different ways before, and I won't dwell on it now, but I first trusted Christ in a, a believer's simple prayer as an eight-year-old child in vacation Bible school and said, 
It looks like I'm a sinner, God, and I need a Savior, and I've been told Jesus is the one. I trust in him. And I think from that eight-year-old confession of faith, God was doing a work in me. But I had all the kinds of adolescent struggles. And if you're listening to me and you've trusted Jesus, but you're 10 or 12 or 15 or 16, maybe your struggles were just like mine, which were really struggles about what we call assurance I knew Christ, but I wasn't assured of it. So every time somebody said, well, raise your hand if you want to rededicate your life, my hand was up because I thought, you know, I've responded to that kind of thing many times before. But maybe it didn't take the first time. So here I am, Lord, I want to rededicate my life. I needed assurance that Christ had really done his work. And do you know where it came for me finally? Age 17, I remember it distinctly just in a quiet way one Easter when I was near the end of high school. Someone went through the proofs of the resurrection. And they must have said, I don't remember the precise words, but the pastor must have said something like, it's a lot harder to believe that all these proofs are false than it is to accept them as true. And I sat there and said, yes, that's it. It is true. I can't move that evidence. It would move any jury to decide in favor of the resurrection. Why would I resist that anything God says is false anymore? It isn't about what I feel. You see, I was going on feeling a lot. I don't feel saved today. I felt saved on Sunday, but I didn't feel saved on Tuesday. All of a sudden, I saw it didn't have to do with that. It had to do with the facts of what God had done in Christ, and I was ready to trust those facts. And honestly, ladies and gentlemen, I won't tell you my my life has no doubts or struggles from that day to this, but I have never doubted my salvation in Jesus Christ from that day to this. I believe God's evidence. I ask you to examine that evidence. I ask you what Jesus said more as a command than a request to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Yes, many things in the Scripture still have mystery to them. I can't explain the Trinity to you completely. I can't completely satisfy you in the question of predestination and election. I can't completely satisfy you on a lot of things where the roots of things are in mystery of the greatness of God. But there's enough evidence of what God has done that I'm ready to stand with my faith where my mind can't quite figure it all out. And I know that God does not ask me to believe anything that is contrary to reason. So in the third place today, we conclude here with verse 31, which, again, John has said is the purpose statement for this whole gospel. These things are written that you might believe Jesus is the Christ. What what did Thomas confess? My Lord and my God. That's exactly what he wanted to hear, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing this have life. He didn't mean biological life. Thomas had biological life. He didn't need that. His body was breathing. The cells of his body were reproducing. Respiration was going on. Growth was going on. All the things that make biological life were in place. He was talking about spiritual life. Now look at quickly several sub-points under that. What does it mean to have this life? Certainly one thing it means is a sure escape from eternal death. 
It means having a life that doesn't end when your body dies. The worst horror about death is not the end of your body, but ultimately the loss of your soul in what Scripture calls the second death, the eternal separation from God, the eternal misery of living in woe and being apart from God forever. John 3 is a wonderful passage about salvation. You all know John 3.16. But John 3.18 says, Whoever does not believe in Christ is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 3.36, the end of that same chapter says, Whoever believes in the Son has, right now, present tense, eternal life. Whoever does not trust in the Son shall never see life doesn't matter that you're walking around right now. You will never see life because the wrath of God remains on that person. So the first thing it means to have life is to not die eternally and spiritually. Secondly, another sub-point here is contained right in this text. Three times, did you notice how Jesus greeted people? He said it three times in this text that I read. What was his greeting to them? Peace be with you. Now you think maybe that's just the way first century people greeted each other. I've been greeted in these hallways. I've walked the building up and down to go to Sunday school at that end and come back here again. And people say, morning, pastor. How are you? You know how we greet each other. Is that all peace be with you is about? I really don't think so. Occurring three times as it does in this short passage, it seems to say to me, here is the risen Jesus Christ wishing to his believing people the blessing of what he has accomplished for them on the cross. Peace, reconciliation with God, not being God's enemy anymore, being the friend and the child of God, knowing you are accepted with God. Back in chapter 14, Jesus said, my greatest legacy I leave you is my own peace that I give to you, being in a satisfied relationship with God. That's what it means to have life. And then third and quickly here is the possession of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that in this text? Some people get a little upset. They say, what is this here in, in John uh, uh, verse 22 of chapter 20 when it says, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought the Holy Spirit only showed up in Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost. What's this? Is this a contradiction? Of course not. God's Word doesn't contradict itself. There are many gifts and ways in which the Holy Spirit is manifested in the Scriptures. Jesus here in parting with his disciples or in these final days that he is explaining to them what things mean was giving them the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And yes, this wasn't the same gift as Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out for special manifestations of speaking other languages and understanding other languages, but here is the blessing of possessing the Spirit, the very indwelling presence of Christ himself, the third person of the Trinity representing the second person coming to dwell in the life of believers. And so that Jesus himself is like an animating, refreshing, living spring within these people so that they could discern the Scriptures and and do what Paul said, have the very mind of Christ 
Here's how it was fulfilled that Jesus said, I'm going to be with you. Who is going to be with a visible body, Jesus? No. Jesus, by his Spirit, was going to be with his people forever. These are all things that have to do with having life. And I wrap up this chapter here with Thomas, who was the most stubborn, intransigent doubter. Do you see the transformation? It was instantaneous. Thomas, put your hand here. Touch my hand. Touch the wound. We are not even told. All we're told was what he said. We're not told what he did. We're not told he fell down on his knees. He wept. He shouted. He laughed. None of that is there. The emotion of it isn't described. Just the cry, my Lord and my God, a perfect five-word testimony that only a Christian can speak about Jesus Christ. Interesting fact unfolded if you read the commentaries on this passage and on the Gospel of John. You, you probably would say that John is a gospel that's much about faith, wouldn't you? It's very, very interesting. The word faith as a noun does not occur anywhere in the gospel of John, not even once. But the word to believe as a verb is there almost a hundred times, more than in any other book of the Bible. Isn't that interesting? What is John telling us? God is looking for an action response, a verb response that stakes your entire commitment and trust. The actual construction in the Greek language, I won't get into that too much, but it actually, you're being asked to trust into Christ. Trust into him. What he is, who he is, all he did, stake your trust on that and be able to say, as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. Don't put yourself at a disadvantage by adamantly demanding that God give you some special treatment or witness or experience that he hasn't given everyone else. He's put his evidences all over the word. Reliable people who were not prepared to believe in the resurrection saw these things, reported these things. Do you think they reported these things because it did them good? Every man in that room except John himself was killed because of believing these things. Every one of them was martyred except John. It was no advantage to their lives in particular to believe into Christ, to stake their lives on Christ. But they knew it was true. And they knew the evidence was true. And if you're the person who's always the last one to be convinced... I just want to ask you, what greater thing do you think God has to do to convince you? Can you really say to him, the case is not convincing. I'm sorry, God. You've got to do something more than you've done. Would you stop and think about that, what you're saying? The real person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, left marks of evidence all over history. And if you're one who says, if only I could see him first, I would believe... You need to hear what John said here. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. The evidence is good. Trust in him. Call him Lord and God.
today. Father, we ask you to let Easter faith leak out all over our lives. We're so good at an outburst of it on Easter Sunday. We're, we're so happy on Easter Sunday. I'm, I'm always kind of amazed at the joyous attitude in the church with all the folks who crowd in. But I always am mystified, Lord, that those who don't come back for a whole year, they're so happy. But I wonder, how can they believe it and put it in storage for a year? Would you renew Easter faith for us day by day and bring it up against the challenges that we each face? That we, like Thomas, might daily say, my Lord and my God, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.